Naomi Mora had strong convictions about a few things. Her mum made the best baklava around. Going ice skating with her friends was fantastic. And Armageddon was coming any day. When it did, she believed, fire and brimstone would rain down from heaven and humanity would be violently wiped out, except those who lived according to the strict Jehovah's Witness doctrines, like Naomi's family did. Then, as a teenager, Naomi realised there was something about her that meant living by those guidelines would be impossible, and she faced a very big choice. This is Leap, a Life Matters series about making decisions that change your life, things you might have dreamed about but not have thought possible. Naomi Mora now describes herself as the only Lebanese, lesbian, ex-Jehovah's Witness stand-up comic in Australia. Naomi, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to have you on the program. We definitely haven't ever had anyone else by that description. (laughs) I like to double check every now and again, just in case one pops up. And I'd be happy for one to pop up. I was going to say, yeah, it's it's such a niche market. There's not going to be a huge amount of competition, is there? (laughs) That's the idea. (laughs) So, Naomi, the way you live now is Mm. drastically different to the way you lived growing up. Tell us a bit about what life was like for you then as a child in what must have looked in some ways like a normal suburban life. Yeah, I I guess it was fairly normal. So I am a child of Lebanese immigrant parents. I was brought up around Canley Vale, so in southwest Sydney, and lived in a suburban house, went to the local public school, did all the Aussie things. You know, we had a big backyard, so played a lot of backyard cricket and did things with my friends, went out ice skating, bowling, all the kind of wholesome activities you'd expect. So, you know, in some ways very typical, but it was also, also very different to everyone else. So we would go to church, you know, three three times a week. One of those times was in someone's home, but we would always be studying the Bible and Jehovah's Witness literature. And you had to prepare for each of those. So there was some pre-work to do and then you would attend. You'd also go preaching. So you're, you're not only are you kind of learning what it's all about, but you're you're also teaching others and, and trying to get other people to understand it as well. And as a female in the church, I would have to wear a dress or a skirt to each of those meetings and to go preaching. That had to be below my knee. For men, there were other rules. They couldn't have beards or long hair. So there was a kind of grooming aspects that, that you were, that you had to abide by. When it comes to birthdays, so I never celebrated my birthday until I was 22. So there were no birthday celebrations to attend. As Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't actually vote. There are all these kind of rules that, that kind of controlled how you lived your life. So it's sort of on the face of it, you were in society. So it wasn't a cult like you might imagine sort of off in a commune somewhere, but we were we felt very separate to the rest of society, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? How, how does that work? Even you know, if you have to earn money and be part of the economy, and to an extent follow laws and rules, how how mm. do you live that double life? Well, I think they they don't want you to be not abiding by the laws in your country. And yes, you have to earn money. So, but but everything is at the very minimum minimum, because this world is so temporary. Is, is what I was taught. So we certainly weren't encouraged to go and have further education. So I left school when I was 16, which was, you know, legal, but obviously not necessarily set up very well for a, a good career. They encourage you to do sort of basic work just to kind of make ends meet. Nothing where you might be questioning things too much. So they, they 
encourage you to do quite, I guess, menial kind of work just to, to make it work rather than go and make friends and create a community in your workplace is not something they would be encouraging. And that's because we just believed that we were living in the last days, so the end of the way the world is at the moment, and that Armageddon was going to come. And that when Armageddon came, that it would destroy everyone that wasn't a Jehovah's Witness. And then as Jehovah's Witnesses, we would have to clean up the earth and turn it into a paradise. Um, and gradually we would all become perfect humans that would live forever on earth in a paradise. That was the goal. But in the meantime, we were just living in this world as it was, and it was a very temporary world until Armageddon came. Wow. So that sense of life being temporary, that's a, such a different outlook to a lot of mainstream Australian society, isn't it, that you should not be preparing for the future? Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is the overwhelming feeling that you got and still get. So my, my parents are still Jehovah's Witnesses today and they believe it's going to happen any day now. Well, Armageddon, this is their whole life, you know, my whole childhood. It was going to happen any day. So any issues that you might have, if you were unhappy, you just felt like, well, that's okay because Armageddon's going to come and that's not going to be an issue. So you're able to put off a lot of things. And I'm seeing a weird like knock-on effect of that. My parents, because they believe the world was going to end any day, you know, they're getting, getting older now and have made no real thoughts or plans on what was going to happen, you know, in their latter years and trying to work with them now about, you know, next steps when they just, they did not expect to be getting old and staring down the barrel of the end of their lives. So it's a weird thing. It's like a world without superannuation. Well, um, yeah. And if people are leaving school at 16, then that kind of often limits their earning capacity, even in the, the, the temporary life, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And people that leave the religion later in life really feel it hard. I think it's one of the hardest things. I was kind of quite lucky in the sense that I left when I was 22, um, but I certainly know people that have left much later in life and have very little to fall back on, you know, uh, you know, staring staring at what they have got and, and just thinking, oh, God, I've got to make this work through retirement and old age, where they were never expecting to be um, thinking. Well, and it sounds like, too, I mean, there's there's this cushioning effect of the Jehovah's Witness community. Like, you, you're in a community of very mm. strong strongly glued together community of people who believe the same thing. Mm. And that must be hard when you leave too. Oh, yeah. Well, because one of the key things is that they encourage you to stick to that community because uh, that way you're not influenced, um, you're not encouraged to do things you're not supposed to do. So when you're in it, it feels very close. You feel kind of embraced by it. But if if you decide to leave, and that could be a conscientious decision that you've you've made, or you could do something which goes against the religion's code, you can get kicked out or you can leave of your own accord. But when you do, they have a, a practice uh, where they shun people that have left. And that's a pretty full-on experience. And that's probably the hardest bit of it. It's knowing that you can't just change your mind um, on this. If you do, you know, you, you have to be prepared that your, your, your whole community, your friends, your family will stop communicating with you. And it's pretty, you know, in, in a sense, it feels quite life-threatening at the time when that's happening because you, you need that community and that is the only community you've invested time in. So it's not like you can fall back on a whole nother community that, you, um, that you've got in the, in, on the side there. 
We're speaking with Naomi Mora, who left that community uh, with all that that entailed at the age of 22. She was a Jehovah's Witness up until that point, and it was a very, very big decision. And that's what we're interested in, the, the process that led up to that decision and what it was like to take that leap in life. Mm. You mentioned that, you know, you're deeply invested in that community, but you actually went to state school too, didn't you? What, what was it like there, having, having the kind of twin social interactions and perhaps being exposed to different ideas. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I was lucky in that I had a good friend network at school, always slightly arm's length because you always knew, you know, you weren't supposed to get too close and you were so different. So when I was at school, I couldn't celebrate Christmas or Easter or birthdays, all those things that happen quite a lot on rotation at school um, because Jehovah's Witnesses don't celebrate those things. So you're a little bit isolated as a result, even though you're in state school. And then, you know, I suppose things happen. In science, you get taught about evolution, but obviously as Jehovah's Witnesses, um, we were told that evolution wasn't a thing. So I was encouraged to give my teacher some Jehovah's Witness literature to explain why God created everything and evolution wasn't a thing. And um, so those times you're sort of isolated, even though you're there, you're sort of setting yourself apart in a way. Well, and you mentioned before this idea that the world is temporary, the material world, it's going to end any day now is is the strong belief of Jehovah's Witnesses. And it wasn't going to end quietly and easily, was it? Tell us a bit about how powerful that narrative was about the end of days. So the way it's explained is that things will get worse during the last days. And we believed that those days were then, you know, because they predicted all earthquakes and war, like things that have been going on for a very long time. But still, that was indication that we're in the last days. And then before Armageddon was going to come, which was going to be very violent, there would be something called the Great Tribulation. And the way that's described is that the world or the governments would turn on Jehovah's Witnesses and they would persecute. Jehovah's Witnesses. And it was described very vividly what sort of persecutions we might expect, that the government would try and track us down, that we would be tortured to give up our brothers and sisters. And I remember when I was quite young, trying to decide what kind of torture I thought I could withstand. And I thought, well, if I was in isolation, I might do okay, uh, just sort of being in my own space. But if they tried to do something like pull nails, I thought I'm not going to last. I'm going to tell them where everyone is. And so you would sort of, I remember thinking a lot about types of torture. And, you know, sometimes you're exposed to stories where people talk about like political, you know, unrest where there's been torture. And I think, oh, I wonder if, I wonder what, how I'm going to be tortured and what I I can withstand. Mm, I was raised Catholic and this is ringing bells for me about very detailed (laughs) stories about hell. But, you know, I guess like Catholics, Jehovah's Witnesses say, look, it's a religion. It's not a cult, even though Mm. some academic literature refers to it. And certainly people who leave it refer to it as a cult. In your view, why do you use the word cult? I guess I see it over the years, and I certainly agree. I, at the time, I thought it was a religion and a quite a mainstream one. I, in retrospect, see it as very high control. So there's a lot of control over your thoughts, over what you do, where you spend your time, the people that you get to hang out with. The, the shunning aspect of it makes me think it's like a cult where you should be able to stop believing something and not have to lose access to your friends and family um, if it was something, an, a normal mainstream religion. Um, yeah. So we can see the very strong ecosystem of belief, Naomi Mora, that, that was set up around you as a child. What happened when you hit puberty? Yeah, I mean, things changed then. So I was kind of well into that thought process. But uh, one thing that was kind of nagging away at me is that I was starting to notice that I was attracted to women and or girls, I suppose, at the time. And I knew it wasn't 
right. Like I knew it was out of line with what was expected. I could see my friends were starting to be attracted to men and I just it just wasn't there for me. And so it, it started to really weigh on my conscience. I thought, oh, I felt guilty for having those feelings and, and I knew it was something pretty bad. Well, yeah, what is the, the Jehovah's Witness view on being gay? I mean, the view is they acknowledge that you might have those feelings but they see it as a way of life, a choice. And so you can choose not to live that way of life, even if you have those feelings. So what they can accept is a repressed gay person in their flock that sort of doesn't act on any of it. Well, and that that repression for you took on a really interesting form, didn't it? Tell us how you, you kind of dealt with this disjunction between what you were coming to understand about yourself and the teachings. I suppose I had been so limited in my network. So I only knew Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, families and couples. And so I'd only ever seen men and women together. And so I looked at how I was feeling and I thought, well, if I'm attracted to women and I'm a woman, it must mean that I'm a man. That that was my black and white thinking, I suppose, on the explanation for my for why I was feeling the way I was feeling. And then, of course, the internet had just kind of kicked off. And, and so I was able to do some research by myself without having to talk to anyone. And I'd stumbled over at that time what was described as gender dysmorphia. And I thought, okay, maybe that explains it. And I thought, this is kind of okay, because my mum could understand if it was a condition, perhaps better than if it was a choice. So I thought, well, maybe this is what it is. And if this is how I'm feeling, Armageddon's coming. So I don't have to worry about it. what I've got to do is work really hard at being a really good Jehovah's Witness just for the next few years. And then Armageddon will come. And then, you know, I was taught God would get rid of these feelings and I could go on and live what I perceive to be a normal life. And Jehovah's Witnesses believe that after Armageddon comes, everyone gets destroyed except for Jehovah's Witnesses who then live on earth forever. So I thought, okay, well, I just got to get to that point and then it will kind of go away. And so I just decided I'd be celibate. I'd sort of take a celibate oath and just stay as a Jehovah's Witness and do the best I could. And that worked for a little while, but in your late (laughs) teens, it's a pretty tricky time to be doing that. What happened when you turned to your sister? Um, My sister wanted me to stay. She was 10 years older than me. She definitely encouraged me to stay and her her way of doing that was to say, look, let's try and get you someone to see, let's try and get you some help, but ultimately, you know, try and stick it out as a Jehovah's Witness. But she was kind of giving me a way out. I, I could come and live with her and make my life a bit easier. But I was quite depressed at that point when I, was, when I thought I couldn't handle it. That was her, her trying to save me. Well, and you, you got quite a different response from your brother who had rejected the community at this point and moved to London and was shunned by people within the community. Mm. What happened when you reached out to him? Oh, it was like a, at that point I felt like it had saved my life because he was, he had just moved over with my other brother and their partners and they were living in London. And, you know, he just said, look, I'm going to put some money in your bank account, get yourself a ticket, just come over here and just take a break. Don't, don't try and make any big decisions. Just try and take a break and we can, you know, give you some of that headspace. Cause it was very hard to get headspace when you're in the religion and they know that you're doubting because they kind of hone in on you and try and really, um, I don't know if you've heard the expression of love bombing you, but just making you feel very loved so that you don't go. Yeah. And yeah, we we talked before about that kind of community glue that can be so lovely and nurturing, but also so difficult if you do want to question or leave. Absolutely. So you go to London. How powerful was that time and and what happened there for, for helping you work things out? Oh, it was like a I don't know, is it a 90 degree turn on my life? You know, when you watch those movies where they drop someone who's been living in some 
tribal village into a city, mm-hmm. I felt so out of my depth on so many things, on so many levels, and no community that I was used to. I had been out of contact with my brothers and, and their partners because I was doing the right thing of, of mostly shunning them. I would see them periodically, but not not enough to feel like they were my a close at that point. I got to know them, of course, once I was over there. But So I felt a little bit on my own in this big city, and so many things were foreign to me. You know, uh, No one really knew I was a Jehovah's Witness. I, I had intended to keep going to meetings but in London and carry on, but I didn't. I actually just didn't. So everyone that I met, you know, didn't know this about me. I had to play along and pretend I, I understood social graces and, and things that people did. All of it I found very awkward and just trying to navigate and pretend, I suppose, a lot that I that I knew what was knew what I was doing, and you know, I enjoyed it, of course, but I, it was also terrifying in equal measure. <laughs> when it sounds like your brother and his partner were really clever about it, they're like, let's just go out a little bit, let's let's hang out, hear some people you might like totally. talking to. <laughs> how, how was that for they you? They did. They took me to a lesbian bar, which existed, which so many they don't exist nowadays, but at that point there was this lesbian bar in London, and I mean, it was just. I guess full of people that looked a little bit like me and, you know, were wearing kind of tomboyish clothes, which is what I was at the time. And, you know, were were not backwards in coming forwards, let's put it that way. They were very flirtatious with each other. You know, there were obviously people that were in relationships, so there was a lot of, you know, being tactile. The dance floor was all sort of full of women. And I don't know, I suppose I hadn't considered you could have that world without it being mixed, you know, that, that men were involved. So, yeah, and I look at it in retrospect. It was, it was a good move on their part, my brothers and, and their partners. They were they were trying to give me access to just see another way of living without putting too much pressure on, and they came with me rather than just sort of shoving me through the door. So that was a safe, that made me feel quite safe in that scenario. So I think as well, like, people that weren't me in my headspace in that religion were able to see quite clearly that it could just be that I was gay and I just didn't understand that I could be um, and that that was a thing. So they they did a bit more than just take me there. They they made friends So and then they would pull me in and I still have friendships from the very first time I went out, actually, people that I am still in contact with. So, you know, it was overwhelming, it was intimidating, but also it was amazing just to see that women could be women and also, you know, go out with other women and And that was a possibility. To say that I thought it was some kind of version of my paradise would be, uh, you know, would be an understatement. Well, yes, and and you met your first partner around then too, which must have been an incredible experience. Was all that revelation and discovery and exploration feeding into how you felt about your religious beliefs as well? Well, everyone's different on this. For me, I was so overwhelmed with this way that I could live and, you know, this side of myself that I could explore that I didn't really bother going into the intellectualising of my belief system. I just had it, it just stayed there in the background. So what happened was I just accepted that I was going to die at Armageddon. I still thought Armageddon was coming, but I just accepted that I'd die at Armageddon because I thought that might be okay because at least I can have a bit of a a bit of a life um, up until that point. So I'd resigned myself to it as opposed to changed my feelings on it. And within religious communities, the people that are leaving, there are a couple of different types, uh, ways of leaving. Some people call it physically in, mentally out, so PIMO. But I was the other one. I was physically out, but I was mentally in. I still kind of believed it. Uh, I still carried the guilt and the shame of 
you know, what I saw was homosexuality and that that was a really, you know, a bad thing. And so none of that had changed. That took a lot longer. But initially I thought I'm just going to do it anyway. And talking to you, Naomi, about these turning points in your life, it's, it's you know, some of the people we talk to for Leap, they've had one big turning point and that's it about face. But you've had a lot of mini turning points, haven't you? There was moving to London, there was discovering that, you know, you could be gay and that there was a gay world that you could mm. engage with. I understand that finding comedy played a role as well in, in perhaps helping reset some of those intellectual beliefs. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think... For me, that's how it was. Small, not small decisions, but medium-sized decisions that I thought were palatable and (laughs) well-intentioned seemed to be able to get me to one hurdle. I kind of describe it like using your torch on your mobile phone rather than switching the light on. I think if I'd switched the light on and saw a future where I was a gay woman living my life away from my family and in a religion outside of the religion, I think that would have been overwhelming for me and just a bit too much for me to get my head around. So, yeah, I did little things and eventually kind of got there. And comedy was one of those things because I had well and truly unpicked the beliefs, I suppose, the big ones, but I was still left with these feelings that I think were unexplored and comedy allowed me to be far enough away from it that I could laugh at it and allow myself to be quite irreverent and not scared because I always thought, oh, I could never say anything bad against the religion because really that is the ultimate thing to do as a Jehovah's Witness. To speak badly of the religion is like eternal, you know, damnation. You're, You're seen as an apostate. And I thought I will never get to that point because, you know, there's nothing really wrong with it. But of course, over time, you're like, actually, there is, and there's a lot wrong with it. And it, you know, it was really hard for me. And I was able to process my emotions. And also now I see the impact on other people's lives. And I want to, you know, I want to have a voice in waking people up to what it means to be in a high control religion. So, yeah, I feel much more confident and definitely process things a lot more over time. Well, and you would have needed some of that confidence when you eventually moved back to Sydney to be shunned by just about everyone in the community. What was it like trying to rebuild a life here on such different lines? Yeah, I mean, one of the best things I did was move away and do all these things because you didn't have to face it so directly. It was hard moving back um, and life had moved on so much, you know, for me personally. My mum had all, has always kept in touch with me and always spoken to me, so that was always a nice thing that not everyone has, actually. I feel quite lucky to have had um, my mum be that way. But then, yeah, you just look for different communities. So certainly when I first left, it was the queer community. And in a weird way, coming back to Sydney was the comedy community and sort of improv and doing those sort of things that allowed me to um, create a new community in Sydney. And the other thing that I do as well is I volunteer for a not-for-profit called Recovering from Religion. And we do a peer group facilitation for people who are leaving. And I find that's really helped me as well. I feel kind of ready to sort of be able to facilitate that conversation. Well, and you've recently had a baby with your partner of seven years. Congratulations. Thank you. I know. I'm tired, but it's great. Yes. Big new life phase. (laughs) Yes. But what's your advice, Naomi, to people who might feel stuck in a situation or feeling like they need to make some kind of big change, like the giant one that you made in, in stages, but who might be feeling a bit scared about doing it? Yeah, I I always think it's if you try to imagine a future that might just be a bit too hard. And so I guess this was my way of thinking of it is making small incremental changes rather than a massive change and testing it, seeing how you feel. 
that idea of just gradually moving to something which I couldn't have imagined. And I'm glad I didn't spend too long trying because I wouldn't have imagined this. I wouldn't have imagined I could be happy, to be honest, at the, the heart of it. I, I always thought I would always be unhappy, but I could I could live with it. But I couldn't imagine that I could just in myself be happy at some point. So small improvements, just making little decisions, trying to listen to yourself rather than everybody else and allowing yourself to make you know, some decisions that will help rather than hinder. For me, it was better than trying to make a massive wholesale change. I just, for me, it was too much to think about doing it all at once. So, yeah, that's, and having some kind of network and, and knowing who your network is and leaning on them. Um, like I had my brothers, which they weren't my tight network, but they were certainly a safe pair of hands and they were definitely going to listen to me in a way that even the people closest to me at the time couldn't do. So just being able to be drawn to the people who are a good support rather than um, perhaps your most obvious support system, which may not support you in doing what you want to do. Naomi, I'm so glad you've landed where you have in a in a safe space and that you hopefully will never have to lose your fingernails to torture. That's a good thing. <laughs> and thank yes. you so much for telling us a bit about your big change in life on Life Matters today. Thank you for having me. Naomi Mora describes herself as the only Lebanese lesbian ex-Jehovah's Witness stand-up comic in Australia. And who are we to argue? You're listening to RN. In 2021, Derek Cusack was in a pretty bad place. 24 years old, hanging out with all the wrong people and using drugs and alcohol to cope. Then in one of his darkest moments, a friend recommended a unique opportunity, the Indigenous Marathon Project. And it would lead to Derek, who'd never run before, clocking up over 1,200 kilometres in six months, eventually getting sober and transforming himself into a mental health advocate who runs his own business and mentors young Indigenous men. He's also just become a proud new dad. Why, at this point in Derek's life, was he able to make such a radical change? And what's it like on the other side? That's next time on Leap. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.